This, this, this is you. KUT. KUT, Austin. Stop. This is KUT. I'm Jennifer Staten. Trying to make sense of the coronavirus pandemic means embracing lots of data. Number of confirmed cases, models for spread, best hygiene practices, orders about what's not safe to do right now. It also means digging into human behavior, since our actions dictate a lot about how this goes. To talk about this, I went to Janice Rockman. She's a neuropsychotherapist, licensed professional counselor in the Austin area. Okay, I didn't go to her. As you'll hear from the audio quality, we talked remotely. I wanted to find out about the behavioral aspects of COVID-19. I asked Rockman first about orders and instructions why, even though we're told not to, some people have still gone out a lot or gathered in groups. She says that behavior hinges on two concepts, delusion and denial. On some level, we as human beings can tell ourselves or think that we can tell ourselves enough times, I'm above this, I'm beyond this, I'm untouchable. And if I stay in this deluded thinking that it probably, and in, in, in our mind at that time frame, it probably won't happen. We tend to want to create a story around something and live that so that we're not um, feeling um, that we're being restrained or held back. And then the other thing is that sometimes we just live in a world of denial. If I just turn away, it doesn't make it real. But turning away from something doesn't take the experience of it away. It just takes our ability to better process it and live through it. How do you get people out of delusion and denial so that their behavior does fall in line with what everybody needs to be doing right now? Now more than ever, I think we need to re-examine the idea of collectivism. And one of the main cognitive distortions, there's a list of them, and one of them is all or nothing thinking, where it has to be all everything, where I'm going out to the lake, and I'm throwing a party, and I'm having people over, and I'm taking a flight, and I'm doing this and that, or um, I'm going to go and, you know, dig a hole or, or live in my cave, so to speak, and hide from everyone. So I think we have to try and find some, some moderation here, lean out of the fear, lean into the love, lean into the possibility that by respecting these boundaries and at least walking a moderate line, we might be better helping our brother, our sister, our neighbor, and maybe even ourselves. And we've been seeing evidence of behavior, buying toilet paper, lots of things <laughs> that we may not you know, necessarily be directly related to what's going on right now, but people felt sort of a need to like just buy a lot of it. Why did people do that? I think that when you think about fear versus love, when I think about the word fear, I immediately think scarcity. The scarcity mentality says, I have to go get all the toilet paper. I have to get as much water because what if, what will happen if I don't have enough? What if I run out? Then it becomes this every man for himself or every woman for herself mentality where I have to get it before they do. And the more that we project that not only into our everyday experience, but the more that we project that onto the people around us, we're going to get more of that because it feeds it. It's a clear and present threat, as we know. It is. How, how it is. can we manage that knowing that we've got weeks, if not months, still ahead? One of the things that happened when our culture was set up is that we had this idea of control. And I think that we have to realize that we have to learn to surrender a degree of our control. I think that some of this is going to be a little bit of a process of surrendering and realizing that there's some finiteness that we all have. And when we sit and we think about and fixate on worry and fear and pandemic and desolation and scarcity, we are releasing an inordinate amount of cortisol in our body and our central nervous system. When we sit and we think about um, what might happen um, that, that is 
clearly out of our control, learning to let go of the things that we can't control, we're also overfying those adrenal glands and, and creating adrenal fatigue. On the reverse of that, when we start to practice mindfulness, if we learn how to meditate, if we learn how to be with ourselves and sit with ourselves and stop looking for external things to make ourselves okay. But as we do this with our brains, we have neuroplasticity, we can retrain our brain and we can begin to release more oxytocin, which is going to be that calming hormone and neurochemical. We can release endorphins and we can begin to calm our nervous system. And that's going to take a practice. So if you haven't started it yet, this is a great time to at least consider it. How can people add and incorporate new habits and really make them stick? I think it's a daily practice. And I think that if we can think to ourselves, I want to start living more mindfully because I actually want to feel different in my own system. I don't want to feel these butterflies in my stomach. I don't want to feel this angst in my chest, in my, you know, in my heart. I want to begin to become the best version of myself with the circumstances that I'm given right now. And that's all that we can really do. And so the practice of it is, again, literally retraining the brain by when you want to go and do what you used to do, which might be to get on the phone and gossip all day about how everything, the sky is falling. If that is what your usual habit is, and it's giving you the results of fear and anxiety and increased depression and stress, then go in the opposite direction. Because if you look at the human brain, there are grooves in the brain. And those grooves are pathways, are neural pathways and highways that have been connected over time through our habits, our choices, and our ideas. So you can begin to practice every day. If, even if you just have a mantra for the day or a statement for the day or an affirmation for the day, do you know when you do that, you actually calm your central nervous system, that vagal nerve begins to, to readapt and, and adjust and really getting that we cannot control what is happening around us, but we can control our response to it and the domino effect that we put out into the world. How can people adjust to ongoing and prolonged isolation? If we're critically dependent on external validation, on external um, resources or people outside of ourselves in order to feel okay. Now, I don't mean like just basic human interaction and need for safety or medication or financial or economic support, things like that. But I mean that desperate hunger that sometimes we feel when we don't get enough likes on social media or when we walk in the room and people don't acknowledge us at the party or when we start to feel lonely. If we don't know who we are and we're always looking without to be okay, we'll continue to suffer. So, so some of this is going to be going back into that primitive instinct that we have that we can just be and dwell amongst ourselves with who's in our space. And if it's just us in our space, it's time to look at the person in the mirror and get comfortable. So if you have to journal, if you have to read, if you have to do some crying and do some cathartic things and then reach out for support when needed, I think we're going to have to get used to a new normal, honestly, and to be flexible because if you're rigid, you'll, you'll break. If you have flexibility, you can bend and not break and have resiliency until this all passes and we figure out what the new normal is. Denise Rockman is a neuropsychotherapist, licensed professional counselor with J-Rock Therapy, a Central Texas brain-based private practice. You can keep up with more coverage of the coronavirus pandemic.